Hey, it's Jose Galison. You're watching No Way Jose. Thanks as always to Justin Campbell at jcamp1521 on Twitter for putting together the intro for me. Uh, he does uh, other work for, uh, like that, uh, whether it be cutting clips for podcasts, uh, pretty much anything, you know, tech side of podcasts related. You hit him up, he'll help you out. Uh, whether you want to do supercuts, intros, whatever, he, he's available for commissions. Hit him up. Um, you can find me on YouTube, all major odd bike pictures, Odyssey as well. Today, my guest is Richard Booth. Um, this is a, by the way, oh, I just see you in the, the, the chat, Junkie Jeff. Uh, I don't know if you have me on Facebook, uh, but if you do, send me that Jinx video. Sorry, not to throw it off the, the thing. I just saw you in the chat. Uh, I got nuked off Twitter, so I don't, I meant to play that Jinx video of uh, Terrence Yeeke for this episode as the intro, but whatever, that, that fell through. Uh, but I uh, just want to remind you guys that the way this works is if you're watching the 21st, it's a live stream. Uh, it'll get taken down uh, taken down almost immediately after. It'll go up roughly about a week or so later. Uh, you know, that's when it'll go public. If you want to have access in the meantime, you have to have Patreon. Uh, lowest level is two bucks. Uh, it's patreon.com. just no way Jose 2020. Um, but uh, is the Patreon. Um, and uh, the highest level being 20 bucks. And that is, uh, that's a sponsor level. And that's, I have CD McRae of the Whiskey and Tea Podcast. Jeremy of Etsy.com, so shops just raising liberty. That's where you can get his wares at. Um, Mikel Thorpe of the Expat Money Show. Um, the topic today we're going to the AK OKC bombing because I mean, I kind of already alluded to it with the Terrence Seeky thing. If anyone follows that and knows what's up with that, uh, that I kind of got sucked into the wormhole by Jinx with that. I've been kind of aware of the Oklahoma City bombing stuff before, but uh, I really went on a wormhole and realized, like, holy crap, this is probably, I mean. Of all the deep dives I've gone to, this is probably one of the craziest ones. That's a that's a lot of holes in it. So it, it's and it's still kind of a to some extent a mystery today. A lot of it. So it'll be interesting to go over it. I do want to let you guys know next week I'm covering the Duncan Lemp thing uh, with Magnus Pinvidia. We'll be covering that um, Tower Gang this week. We have two episodes. One at Porkfest. One will be a normal. That's one of the perks of having a large uh, group. Uh, we have three people at Porkfest, three people not. So we'll be able to do uh, have a, your normal show for you and one at Porkfest. So if you're at Porkfest, go check it out. Uh, go find one of the guys there, Clint, uh, Reed, Toad. Those are the ones there. Find them. Uh, I'm not entirely sure when they're doing it or where they're doing it. It'll be a live one. I think they're going to try to record, so we'll, we may or may not be able to get this up later for you guys on the channel. But obviously, if you're at Porkfest, go find them and see it live. Uh, go check out Top Lobster, toplobster.com. You also check out for 10% off. He has all the merch you want, whether it be No Way Jose, Tower Power Hour, you know, Reed's show, Naturalist Capitalist, you know, it be Liberty Lockdown. He has all the gear. Uh, he has all of his own original stuff and a lot of other podcast merch as well. So go hit him up. And let's go ahead and get into that. Let's get Richard on here. Uh, let's do this. Hey, what's up, man? Hey, Jose. How are you? Good. Yourself? Good. Good. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. Uh, oh, I, I think I mentioned earlier, just for those watching, I, Twitter just get nuked. So this is a good time to remind you guys, share, like, comment, subscribe, all that stuff. Because my reach just got uh, uh, yanked by, uh, by I guess, it's soon to be Elon. Hopefully he'll fix it when he comes in. But uh, I'm not too worried about it. Uh, I'll, I'll probably be back on there soon. But it's hard to get a good reach when it does that. It is what it is. Um uh, if you could go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience, let them know who you are, uh, how you're pertinent to this topic, uh, you know, maybe what research you've done, et cetera, et cetera, whatever you want to tell. Yeah, sure thing. So uh, my name's Richard Booth. I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, grew up in Oklahoma, and uh, I was uh, 17 years old when the Oklahoma City bombing happened. 
And I followed it in the newspaper. Of course, everybody in Oklahoma, that was the number one story. Everybody was talking about it. And what got my attention in the case really was that I saw that within a couple of days of uh, uh, the bombing, there were sketches of two suspects in the case that were put in the paper. And uh, ultimately, the FBI never did identify, and, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but they, they said that one of these other suspects doesn't exist. And I began to feel like I was being lied to when uh, when I heard that. And what was happening in around this time, uh, I'd say around 97, 98, uh, I was on a mailing list online, and I would get uh, news clippings from the McCurtain Gazette which was a newspaper out of Idabel, Oklahoma. They had a lot of groundbreaking coverage in it by a reporter named J.D. Cash. And so I was just following his stories and following what was being posted to this uh, mailing list. I, uh, I didn't proceed much beyond like just being a consumer of news until actually being a researcher until probably around 2014. Um, I'd read a book written by Roger Charles called uh, Oklahoma City, What the Investigation Missed, and it really brought it all kind of flooding back to me, everything I'd read about it before. So I started reaching out to various researchers, um, various academics, and started uh, basically collecting documents. And between 2014 and 2016, I had amassed just a huge collection of like 1400 news clippings, a bunch of FBI documents, a bunch of other documents. And uh, long story short, I basically donated this archive of documents to Scott Horton at the Libertarian Institute. And he put them all online to make them searchable for people. And um, essentially I've been working with the various people who uh, researched this case, Jesse Trinidou, Wendy Painting, uh, before Roger tragically passed away in February of this year. Um, I'd been talking to him for about probably six years, and he sent me just a great deal of material and also uh, so many conversations we had. I learned so much as he had been covering the case since like 96. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at now. All right, cool, cool. All right, let's go ahead and get into the what the official narrative is of Oklahoma City bombing. And I know it sounds kind of a, a pedestrian almost, but I, I mean, even for me, someone who's kind of deep into this world of like you know MK Ultra, Operation Northwards, like I'm familiar with a lot of stuff. I've I've gone down these roads. Um, I'm even me. I was I kind of just knew like just the basics. Like ah, yeah, there's a bomb, uh, fertilizer, Timmy McVeigh. Like, I kind of knew the basics. I uh, never really did too deep of a dive. It was just one of those ones that was way back there. You know, you, there's always other fancy conspiracies that catch people's mind or uh, events, whatever. Uh, conspiracy kind of gives it a negative angle to some extent. But uh, uh, I guess let's start off with what the official narrative was of what happened, and then we'll go from there. Sure. So the official narrative uh, basically says that Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols built a fertilizer bomb at Geary Lake in Kansas on April 18th. And that on April 19th, Terry Nichols stayed home in Kansas and Timothy McVeigh drove the Ryder bomb truck from Kansas to Oklahoma City, uh, that he parked that in front of the Murrah building 
and fled uh, in kind of a drop car, fled in a, a beat up Mercury Marquis. And uh, the bomb went off, you know, it, it killed something like 168 people. It destroyed about two thirds of the federal building. If you see the pictures, it's just demolished. Uh, Tim McVeigh was driving in this vehicle that had no license plate on it and he's speeding and he's on the freeway and he's pulled over probably about an hour and a half uh, after the bombing uh, for having no license plate. Now, when he's pulled over, uh, the officer who uh, pulled him over for this minor traffic violation noted that he had a concealed weapon. And so he arrested McVeigh for carrying a concealed weapon. At that time, there was no, uh, uh, it's not like the, the officer thought he had anything to do with the bombing. It was just a typical, I'm taking you into custody for this. And so he was um, basically taken to jail and he had a, an arraignment coming up in a couple of days. So he's sitting tight in jail while the FBI investigation is going on. And what happens there essentially is very quick. The FBI finds the rear axle to the Ryder truck. Um, and using that, they track the truck to a rental uh, outfit in Kansas called Elliott's Body Shop. And so they go to Elliott's Body Shop on the uh, very late on the 19th, early morning hours of the 20th, and they interview the witnesses there. The, this bomb truck had been rented at Elliott's Body Shop on April 17th, and that's a Monday. And so they interview these witnesses and it's very fresh. It's, you know, right after the truck was rented and only two or three people maybe go through this play a day, go through this place a day. It's a small place. And so they interview uh, these three witnesses who say, yeah, the uh, two people came in to pick up this truck. They provided descriptions of the two people who picked the truck up, which produced two sketches that were dubbed John Doe 1 and John Doe 2. Uh, the FBI had a press conference on April 20th uh, where they hold up the two sketches and describe the witnesses, or that is to say, describe the suspects and who they're looking for. And that went out to all major media. And that's really kind of what caught my attention. I saw it and I thought, mm, you know, who are these people, you know, who did this? And uh, what happened as far as identifying McVeigh is a couple of things. Um, firstly, the FBI decided to go and visit the different motels that were located in Junction City right off of the freeway. And one of those motels was the Dreamland Motel. When they showed the sketch of John Doe 1 uh, to the proprietor of the motel, she said that, you know, that looks exactly like a guy who checked in here. And she gave the name, you know, his name, Timothy McVeigh, all the information she had about him. And separately from that, um, a, uh, an individual who ran a place called Pat's Gun and Pawn, uh, a gun and pawn shop at Fort Riley in Kansas, uh, was visited. And uh, he said that he recognized both of the sketches, that uh, the John Doe 1 sketch, largely believed to be McVeigh, he recognized as a person who had written him a bad check for I believe a Tech 9 and a Glock pistol. And so he had 
probably a good better reason to remember this customer than if it were someone else so he goes and he pulls all the documents that he has for the for this guy and it's basically the form that you fill out when you purchase a firearm so they've got mcveigh's name address all that stuff and uh, the feds run that through their criminal database and they see that this individual timothy mcveigh is currently being held uh in in jail and so they know to go and, and get him and then as far as Terry Nichols goes, um, uh, basically uh, McVeigh listed as his uh, nearest relative um, and as his address on his driver's license, the farm of James Nichols, which was Terry Nichols' brother. And this caused the FBI to consider Terry Nichols and James Nichols persons of interest. And that was leaked to the media and Terry Nichols heard that on either TV or radio, and he went and uh, turned himself in at the police station in Kansas upon hearing that. And that's essentially uh, how the whole thing played out as far as the official story goes. Now, bear in mind that back at this time, the official story said that there were two people in the rider truck when it was delivered. That's what all the witnesses said. And they were also saying that two people picked up the rider truck and neither one of those two people is thought to be terry nichols he looks nothing like the sketch and uh, he was in kansas at these various times uh, and that story did begin to change over time which was what caused my suspicion and many others yeah um all right i actually was thinking about doing this later but i kind of want to do it now i want to uh, i want to go over the kind of the cultural and significance of Timothy McVeigh and the period in which he did it. Uh, I mean, and I kind of know, but I'll let you, you do it since uh, you'll probably be able to do it better than I will. Uh, obviously, I, I, you probably know I'm getting at kind of the loose connections to Waco. He was even recorded being at Waco, uh, which obviously leads to Ruby Ridge. But I'll, I'll let you do that real quick so people can understand the cultural significance of this. And, and this kind of leads into some of the uh, perceived a lot of conspiracies of what uh, came after and, you know, uh, and also there was a burgeoning militia movement, but I'll, I'll let you take off before I take all your, your steam. So. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, definitely. That's an important part of the context here uh, because essentially what, what we're seeing here is that you had Ruby Ridge happen uh, where, you know, FBI hostage rescue team uh, killed uh, women and children. And then you had uh, Waco right after uh, where they burned alive, uh, bunch of American citizens, including a bunch of children, using tanks, flamethrowers. Um, essentially, it is an environment where you have the federal government um, acting in a way that it's wholly inappropriate, and there is outrage throughout most of the nation, not just among uh, radicals, but uh, especially um, on the gun show circuit, you, you would see a lot of uh, videos being sold about Waco, uh, about Ruby Ridge, and this is one issue that uh, was something that was sort of a motivating factor for Timothy McVeigh. Uh, he considered what the bombing basically to have been revenge for Waco, and I believe he chose, in fact, that building uh, after finding out that it had a daycare in it. He had visited that daycare. He knew it was there. And uh, that gives you some insight, I suppose, into his mind. Um, throughout the country at the time, too, you mentioned there was the militia movement. That was a very big and a burgeoning movement. 
and uh, most of the people within those militia groups were just as outraged as say an average midwestern family uh, might view Waco or Ruby Ridge. It was all viewed as, as totally outrageous. Um, the main difference, I guess, is that these are radicals and they're um, doing things like advocating for violence, advocating to strike back or what have you. Um, and so this is the environment in which this happened. And the date, of course, was no coincidence, April 19th being Patriots Day holiday you know that celebrates the start of the revolutionary war and it happened to be the same date that uh, the waco massacre happened um so yeah that that's kind of how things were at that time yeah um there's also i do think it's important to note the the mainstream narrative uh, that typically gets applied to this is a there's a tinge or tinge may even be putting it lightly uh, of of white supremacy that's obviously uh, you know conflated with this whole situation. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Uh, I mean, you've been a little bit more tied to this than I was. Uh, uh, me, my personal how I feel whenever I hear uh, you know white supremacy being thrown around, I look at it with intense skepticism because um, it's typically a you know I mean for one what the hell even is white supremacy? It's so vague. Uh, what what do you mean? Uh, like. So it, it does it to me. I look at you know, claims like that very skeptically. Uh, it usually just comes off to me as a way for the powers that be to kind of uh, cast cast negative aspersions on something. Uh, so I want your opinion uh, just real quickly, and then we'll start getting to poking holes into the narrative of w your thoughts on the, the white supremacy aspect. Is, is there legitimacy to it? I mean, I think there probably is to some extent, uh, but I think it's grossly exaggerated. It's my personal, you know, instinct. I've now not looked deeply into this. What are your thoughts on that aspect of it? Yes. Yeah, so um, the interesting thing here is that when this happened, Timothy McVeigh was largely characterized as being a militia guy. They were trying to say that he was members or attending militia meetings and all this. Uh, but the truth is, Timothy McVeigh was not a militia guy. He was not a member of any militias. He um, had been to a couple militia events. In fact, I, I'd read one talking about how he was kicked out of uh, one meeting. They, they didn't like uh, the kind of talk they heard from him. And so because of the fact that he was essentially equated with, with being a militia member in the media at the time, uh, it was trying to demonize the militia movement um, in the country by associating them with McVeigh. Now, the, the real facts of this case are that uh, Timothy McVeigh was a white supremacist. He absolutely was. And for example, his uh, favorite book was The Turner Diaries. And uh, another book he really liked was called The Silent Brotherhood, which is a very good book by a journalist named Kevin Flynn. He wrote the story of a terrorist group called The Order. And most people, when they look at the Oklahoma City bombing, completely miss this context. And then what that context is, is that uh, the order was uh, a large, organized, white supremacist terrorist organization that in the early 1980s robbed two armored cars for more than $3 million. And they didn't use it to enrich themselves. They took this money and they gave it away to groups like the National Alliance and other 
white supremacist groups throughout the country. So for them, they were zealots, and this was definitely a movement they were using to fund themselves. Well, Timothy McVeigh and the people that he was associating with at the time of the bombing um, were the uh, essentially the uh, inheritors of the order, and I believe they viewed themselves as, well, we're, we're today's version of the order. Uh, they believe themselves to be silent brothers and soldiers in that movement. And as far as I, I understand what you're saying about how that is used today, very in rhetoric and online, it's oftentimes uh, thrown that that word white supremacist is thrown around rather loosely. Um, when I talk about white supremacists, I'm talking about people like Robert J. Matthews of the order um, of, of people who were terrorists and who did, you know, murder a Jewish radio show host, Alan Berg. And uh, they did operate out of a worldview. He thought he was fighting Zog that day, the quote unquote Zionist occupied government. That's what he was striking at. And so it's key to understand that McVeigh and his accomplices were absolutely white supremacists. I, I want to, and I didn't want to get stuck in this too much, but I did actually just find out a little bit about the Turner Diaries today. So I didn't want to touch on that a little bit because I know a lot of people, especially the ones who, uh, and I'm not saying I believe this, but I also don't, I'm saying I don't believe it either. It's one of those things that, like it's a, uh, there's definitely a lot of weird information that leads me to think it's definitely a strong possibility. Uh, of McVeigh being an asset, and we'll get into that. I don't want to go that deep dive, but the Turner Diary specifically, I know it, a lot of people make the claim it almost seemed way too convenient based on what the Turner Diaries are, and there's something to do with, I believe they said he was reading it or saying it out loud when it happened or some shit like that. Uh, so if you could just let people know what the Turner Diaries are, because when you know what it is, it does seem weirdly convenient in, in given the context of what he did and such, so... Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you know more about the Turner Diaries. I don't know a little bit that I saw in some podcasts I watch on the matter or listen to the matter. So if you could, uh, if you know more, I'd appreciate it if you could share with the audience. Yeah, sure. So, uh, the, yeah, the Turner Diaries is important to kind of understanding this movement in the early to mid 80s and then into the 90s. Um, it was a book that was written, I want to say, I think it was 1979. Uh, by the um, the founder of the National Alliance, um, he wrote it under a pseudonym, and uh, I'm I'm drawing a blank on his name right now. I can't believe that. But at any rate, founder of National Alliance writes the Turner Diaries, and it's this post-apocalyptic kind of fiction about uh, the future, um, where you have a tyrannical government that is controlled by basically the Zionist or Zionist Jews or whatever. And in the book, it depicts uh, a kind of a, a diary um, by one of these soldiers who is part of the resistance. And uh, they call themselves in the book, they call themselves the order. And this terrorist group that in the 1980s, around 1983, formed and robbed these armored cars and killed the Jewish radio show host and bombed a synagogue and all this, they named themselves after the group from that book. And essentially, they made the order real. And Timothy McVeigh, I believe, was doing the same thing. He was following in their footsteps. And the book is used as a sort of a propaganda tool 
um, to help radicalize people and to help give them an almost a template or an example on how you can do a leaderless resistance cell-based uh, terror structure uh, to do lone wolf terrorist attacks. Yeah, I believe, uh, the, I guess the angle I was going to get, I believe uh, maybe it's the penultimate moment of that, of the diaries or something. And there's something along the lines of them bombing a federal building. Yes, the FBI, <laughs> FBI headquarters, yeah. Yeah, so that's why, I mean, obviously ended up being ATF here, but, you know, potato, potatoes, you know. Um, so it, it is like it, well, a lot of those people make the case. It's like awfully convenient that they, uh, that he has, uh, he has such a, uh, affinity for such things, you know? Um, and then now they get to cast this light on the entire militia movement type deal. Um, all right, let's back up to the, oh, go ahead. Sorry. You had something to say? I'm sorry. That, that's what, what really happened though. See, is mm -hmm. that the militia movement, it was kind of a bait and switch, uh, the militia movement in large part was not made up of white supremacists. Sure, sure, you had that element there, but what the media tried to do is say that McVeigh's a militia guy and all the militia guys are just like him, when that, that is not the truth. It, it totally separate uh, the militia movement and these white supremacist groups. I would say that they're two separate things. Yeah, uh, I would. I would probably, if I had to guess, I'd probably say it's probably similar to. And I'll admit, I uh, for a period of time, I would consider myself sort of one of these. I most embarrassing thing in my past. The Boog Boys of today. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of them. There was a period of time where I, I was. I shared uh, some common. Uh, I was. I was very friendly to it. I mean, I wasn't like saying I was going to go. I wasn't going to go. You know, do acts of violence. I mean, most of the Boog Boy thing was kind of almost like a meme, like joking that we would just kind of just piss people off, but. Mm -hmm. There was, there definitely was a uh, not a strong contingent, but a small contingent of people in the Boog movement that would be like, you know, racist, straight up racist. And the strong uh, majority of the people in the Boog boy, if anything, they spurned those people. They would cast them out, and in a lot of times, people would make jokes that those were just glowies, you know, like that those ones mm -hmm. trying to make the whole movement look silly, but. You know, in modern day internet, it's way easier just to, you know, make it, it's way harder for that to stick as decentralized as stuff is to be like, no, like they, they, there was such a common thing, this uh, racist thing. But, uh, you know, the guy I have on next week is probably the most notable boob boy, Magnus Pinvidia. And he's like a bi, like kind of come like he's a mutualist. He's kind of lefty-ish. Like it, it, the, the idea that these guys are racist, like, yeah, sure, there are some racists that would call themselves boog boys. And this is kind of like the no true Scotsman fallacy. It's like, yeah, technically, I guess, sure. He says he's a boog boy, so he's a boog boy. But the vast majority of boog boys would be like, fuck you. So uh, like, I, 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 here we are. And I feel like it's probably a very much a parallel to that. Of the time it is. I guess. Yeah. It absolutely is. Yeah. yeah. So, all right, let's back up to the bombing itself. Uh, the Probably one of the most major things was the reports of multiple blasts. So I don't know if you want to touch on that a little bit. Um, you know, all the different uh, people who said, and then maybe some of the uh, official explanations for it. Sure. Um, so that is something that happened, actually. When the bombing happened and they were conducting uh, rescue operations, uh, there were two official bomb scares that happened during the rescue operations. One of them, I believe, it was around 10.30, maybe 10.15. And what happened is, is the... Um, the first responders who are rescuing people who are dying or still alive in the rubble had to be moved and evacuated from the area while explosive devices 
were recovered from the rubble. And that did happen twice. And uh, there's video of this. If anybody watches the uh, documentary film, A Noble Lie, they have some clips in there about it. And I actually got um, CNN's live transcript from April 19th in their coverage. And you can see it right there on the live transcript when it happens. Also have multiple news clips where people are talking about it, saying there's a bomb scare. And so there really isn't a uh, official explanation for that, but there is one that you do hear from time to time from sort of non-official sources. And uh, what, what that really comes down to is that the ATF had an evidence locker, you know, in their, their uh, spot in the building there. And in their evidence locker, of course, they had a whole bunch of contraband that uh, it was illegal for them to store there. They had C4, Simtex, they had a tow missile, they had uh, grenades, uh, hundreds of thousands of rounds of ammunition, uh, guns, and, and presumably, supposedly, they had uh, training devices is what they're saying. And what I get from this is it sounds very much like an excuse for them to say, oh, you just found some of those training devices in there, that's all. And so that's one thing that you hear is, oh, it was some of the material from the ATF's evidence locker. Now, I, I tend to take the position that, um, one, the reports and the bomb scares were accurate and true, that did happen, and two, the evidence locker did have contraband in it, and some of that material was found, but I don't believe the two are mutually exclusive. And I think that there is strong evidence, at least, to show that the asymmetrical bomb damage pa blast pattern that you see on the building, where you have columns that are further away from the rider truck, are totally demolished, turned to powder, and then columns that are closer to the rider truck are left standing is indicative of uh, the damage not simply being from a blast pressure wave from an ANFO bomb, but perhaps from an ANFO bomb in conjunction with explosive devices. And I'm not an expert on explosives, but I remain open to that because of the reasonable reports we have seen. Well, that kind of leads perfectly into my next point, and I'm kind of interested to see what your th thoughts are on this. I heard all right, here is my understanding is it was a fertilizer bomb was like ammonia nit ammonium nitrate and some other uh, some other shit in there. Um, and it was parked about 60 feet away from the building and boom, it blew up. And it, if you look at the photos, it gutted the hell out of the building. And one thing that I heard that and I'm no explosive expert um, at all, uh, but that to me sounds weird. And then I, he I heard people too saying like how that building was made. It was extremely firm. It was made of, you know, concrete rebar. It was extremely well reinforced. And to me, like, I'm no bomb expert, but that sounds a little silly to me that it would, in the point, the person uh, and the one that I made, was listening to, they were talking about that it would, unless it was somehow had projectiles that were directed that way, but just say like a, you know, a, you know, a, just from the, uh, the radius explosion, it, they find it incredulous that it would do that sort of damage in that manner. Uh, I like, cause I guess a lot of people did say that like 300 buildings were damaged. Like, okay, yeah, you get that. That's not that crazy. Windows being blown out, whatever, from the shock of an explosion. But the idea that it would do that extent of damage to that building when it's 
60 feet away, which I mean, isn't that far granted, but still, I don't know for me in my head, the way only way that work is if like they rammed the, the truck into the building and then set it off or something. Uh, it seems it doesn't make sense in my head that it worked that way. Like I said, I'm no explosion explosives expert. So maybe that's completely on the up and up, but it does sound fishy to me. I, I'd be interested to see your thoughts since I'm sure you've gone deep dives on this. So. Well, I think your conclusions are actually are very reasonable and uh, you raise some very good points. Um, the main thing that you need to look at here is that ammonium nitrate uh, is used by blasters uh, who do mining, and it's usually just used to loosen up rocks that are in dirt to basically loosen it up. And the blast pressure wave that comes from an ammonium nitrate bomb, even if it has a booster like nitro in it, that this bomb did, um, is not powerful enough to pulverize concrete uh, into powder um, and it, it, essentially when you look at the building and you look at the blast damage pattern when I say it's it, it's asymmetrical you know you don't have just a circle going outward um, instead you have what looks to me like uh, a building that may have had uh, explosive charges in it that did not all completely go off where two-thirds of the building completely collapsed and um, I think that I pay close attention when I see people who are explosive experts who look at this and comment on it because almost uh, nine out of ten will say exactly what you what you had previously previously just said. They will say that no, no way. And so I think that an argument can be made that there's more going on here. And one thing to note that's very interesting actually is there is a witness who worked inside the Murrah building and uh, she actually said about a week before the bombing, she was uh, being dropped off to go into the building and she's in the parking garage. And when she gets out of her vehicle, she notices in there that there are what look like three construction workers, uh, like overalls, um, they're holding plans and one of them has this putty type material and they have wiring and they're in discussion with one another and pointing out different areas of the garage and it sounds very much like uh, a group of people who are handling explosives and i have her fbi 302 report and in addition to her i found a second witness well, i didn't find but uh, there was a second witness who saw the exact same thing and she was interviewed by Wendy painting and so I think there could easily be a scenario here whereby you have a truck bomb and you also have explosives and there is a leading theory uh, going about this that talk our bodies come in different shapes and sizes so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too that's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues 
for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold talks about how there was some sort of sting operation relating to a truck bomb that was penetrated um, by intelligence figures who not only caused the uh, sting to fail, but caused the bombing to be very successful and to go big by what would happen if you put explosives in the building, right? You're going to not only, you know, ensure that the, you know, that there's uh, damage, but you're going to have a huge body count. If all, if there were charges on the columns and they all went off, that entire building would have collapsed. Two thirds of it did as it is. And I've seen the footage um, taken at the crime scene. And when I saw that, that blew me away. That was, I had never, I just seen pictures online. This is a guy who's like literally right there in front of the Murrah building filming it. And I, I saw that and I thought, oh, my God, there's no way. There's absolutely no way. Uh, actually, one more thing. I wanted somebody in my group chat in, our, our, uh, in the live chat, Junkie Jeff. Uh, he said, and this is actually something I want to touch on a little bit because I, I one thing, I don't know if this is necessarily exactly uh, completely the same thing when it comes to the urea, but I know uh, one thing I was listening to they were talking about with the ammonium um you know, that much it would insanely reek and they were saying from their experience in you know dealing with it in the past that you would be able to smell that for like a long period of time and i guess there were reports supposedly maybe you know more maybe you don't uh people have said that it really didn't like it wasn't like that at all um and junkie jeff says here one of the people doing the chemistry work on the bomb said he couldn't he didn't find urea enough concentration for, for it to be the type of bomb they claim it to be i don't know if what he he's saying what i'm saying are kind of the same thing i'm not sure what the urea is i'm assuming maybe that has something to do with ammonium maybe not i don't know if that's something you can speak on if not that's fine we can move on yeah yeah what you're talking about there essentially is the ammonia in an ammonium nitrate bomb um that uh, is said to uh, after the bomb is detonated um, cause enough of a chemical irritant to be in the air that um, uh, one quote I heard was said, well, it'll gag you, you know, if you're there, you can, you can smell it and, you know, it's gag reflex and it's hard to breathe. Um, but I'm not an explosive expert, so I can't comment on that. But when I do look at other explosive experts who talk about that, that certainly catches my attention. Yeah. All right, well, let's move into, you actually just posted a thing about this recently uh, on your, your channel. We have a lot of good resources because uh, that's that's one of the main things with the uh, Oklahoma City stuff is it was kind of the, a burgeoning time of video. Uh, so there was a ton of a ton of video out there, uh, stuff that's available. It's just a matter of collecting it because it was kind of clunky finding all of it in the 90s. So that's why there's people like you who go around collecting this type of stuff. Uh, but... You you uh, found a little clip from an old uh, twenty minute or not was it not sixty minutes sixty minutes yeah I forgot twenty 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 why did I think yeah. sixty minutes whatever same same difference very, very similar <laughs> yeah all right they, they, it's an easy mistake um, I mean I don't even watch any of that crap anymore it's feel, that stuff feels like ancient history at this point uh, I know it still exists but whatever um, so were you put a thing on there and it kind of went into the possibilities of the ATF and others being aware. 
ahead of time. Um, so I don't know if you want to touch on that a little bit. Like, was the ATF aware, and what do we have that say that show that, or you know, the, the possibility? Obviously, it's kind of hard to get proof. A lot of this is just eyewitness reports. That's a lot of the best we can do with a lot of this stuff. Uh, but yeah, I know there's like multiple things. Uh, you know, I have them all listed here, but I'll, I'll let you go on. Yes. Yeah, so what I had posted there was uh, something, a story called The Families Want to Know, and that was ran in 1997 on uh, 2020. And the associate producer for that was Roger Charles, and he was kind of my mentor on the case. And uh, I previously had only had a transcript of it. I hadn't seen it since like 1997 or 98. Uh, but recently someone uh, sent me uh, the full copy of it. And what's really interesting about that is on this segment, the families want to know what they're talking about is they're saying uh, these bombing victims, uh, they have questions and they they want answers and they had very legitimate questions. And what these questions surrounded uh, were the fact that many of these victims themselves, as well as others uh, in the area, saw the bomb squad outside of the Murrah Federal Building and the courthouse between 6 and 8 a.m. And so the bombing happened at 9.02 a.m. And just to give you an example, some of these witnesses who were interviewed for this 2020 piece, fully vetted, you know, uh, by them, uh, was a gentleman, uh, uh, an attorney named Dan Adamitis, and he was driving into work that morning and he saw a bomb squad and there's a shield on the side it says either bomb disposal or bomb squad on it um, he thought that was interesting he's never seen anything like that before and separate from that you have another individual a private investigator and process server uh, by the name of claude chris he's going to work that morning and he sees outside of the courthouse which is across the street from the murrah building he sees a group of about maybe six or seven guys uh, tactical type gear uh, weapons and they had bomb sniffer dogs and these sniffer dogs they were going through the bushes at the courthouse and uh, so he's seeing these sniffer dogs which are being used they are used to detect explosives and what it looks like is they're checking out the murrah building and the courthouse for explosives and we've got five or six witnesses who all saw the bomb squad there and what this uh, relates to I believe, and many other researchers believe, is that there was a sting operation that was expecting the delivery of a truck bomb in the middle of the night. And the fact is that uh, no bomb, of course, or no truck showed up in the middle of the night. So here at about seven in the morning, they're wrapping up. They've been out there for eight hours. They got to do their due diligence. So they let's take the sniffer dogs. Let's have them go over the building and the courthouse. And OK, nothing's here. So let's go. And they leave, you know, at 8 a.m. And uh, one thing to note uh, regarding this as well is that um, these witnesses uh, showed up at the bomb scene. One of them, he, he showed up there looking for his wife. She worked in the credit union in the Murrah building and he found an ATF agent and uh, he said, hey, I know the, the local ATF guys who work here. My wife and I are friendly with them and you know, I need to get in touch with them. I want to, you know, he desperately wants to find his wife. And this ATF agent essentially told him, uh, well, that it's going to be difficult to, to get a hold of them because uh, they weren't here today. They were uh, tipped by their pagers or told by their pagers not to come in today. And that caused a great deal of 
panic at the FBI, or that is to say at the ATF. You had multiple false statements issued. Oh, there were 20 people there. Turns out, no, there were none. Uh, and then another one, oh, they were out of town on a golf trip. Well, it turns out, no, there was no, no golf tournament or whatever. Um, and then finally, uh, someone in authority at the ATF and uh, head of their uh, ATF in Dallas comes out and says, well, the agents were out on an all-night surveillance operation. And that's why they weren't there that day. And I tend to believe that this all-night surveillance operation and the bomb squad sightings are linked. They are connected in some way. It's a law enforcement operation. And we believe that it relates to a possible sting operation where they have some details wrong. The truck is not arriving in the middle of the night, you know, and they don't quite know the target. They don't know, is it the courthouse or is it the Murrah building? And this is just a couple of examples. There were many, uh, there were warnings that were received. The fire department in Oklahoma received a warning several days before the bombing on the 13th. They got a call from the FBI uh, telling the fire department um, that they need to be on alert and on the lookout. And what's interesting is this warning is so very unspecific. It said there are going to be some some guys coming through. And that just, just doesn't track. Why would you call the, the fire department and say, oh, uh, heads up, there's going to be some suspicious characters coming through? It just doesn't quite track. But when you look at it after the bombing, you see what they're talking about. And the fire department destroyed those dispatch tapes. Uh, they gave over to the FBI transcripts of the tapes. The FBI destroyed the transcripts. Uh, but to his credit, Harvey Weathers, a supervisor at the fire department, uh, confirmed. He confirmed that, yes, this did happen. We did get this call. There was a warning. You know. Uh yeah. Are you aware how many ATF agents they had employed there or roughly uh, at all? Or are you, or do you have that or do you know? You know, offhand, I don't know how many they had there. Yeah. But, because, you know, I'm thinking if it's as little as 20 even, that's significant that they weren't there. Yes. Yeah, that's my thoughts too. Just like uh, – because, I mean, I, I was active duty military for 11 years. Obviously, it's not the same thing. But I, I just – I can't imagine – in a, I mean, yeah, there were certain times there would be random events – We'd have some weird, you know, thing where the whole unit go do, goes and does something. But for the most part, it's extremely rare, uh, and especially when you have a job where it's actually sort of quote unquote real work. Like if you're if you're just someone who works folds towels at the uh, base gym or whatever, that's one thing. But if you're actually doing work, like if you're you know fixing planes or you're a cop or whatever, it's kind of rare that they would have all hands off deck. It, Absolutely, it you know, it, ma it makes no sense, and and um. So that, that, I guess, why, why I was asking how many people. Because, yeah, I mean, if you have a small amount, okay, maybe you can make some sort of weird case. But it's awfully, it's obvious, very weirdly convenient. Um, I do, I do want to touch real quick on the elevator story. Uh, and then also, real quick, I do want to mention, uh, which, I mean, I'm sure this isn't lost on most people. But I do want to reiterate, because I do think it's important. If they were tipped off, no one said shit to the people who had uh, kids at the daycare center. So this is the, the weird aspect of like, yeah, maybe it was some crazy oversight, but I mean, it's in either extreme incompetence or extreme competence. One of the two, like they, that was either intentional or not. It's one of the two. It was either a gross, like gross negligence or a gross evil. I don't, you know, uh, one of the two. Uh, and I don't see any room for anything in between. I have a super chat from Drywell O. McVeigh was a stooge. Thanks, y'all. We'll get into that. 
Uh, I'm already thinking, thinking I may make this into two or three episodes as long as you're okay with it. So we'll probably touch more on McVeigh next episode if that's something you're uh, okay with. Otherwise, this will probably be a three-hour podcast. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, thanks for that, Drywall. Oh, I do want to bring up one thing I thought was amazing in that little bit you sent was the elevator story. So I don't know if you want to let my audience know about that because that, that one was pretty fucking wild. <laughs> it certainly was. Yeah. And uh, that was part of the ATF's uh, excuses when it came out uh, that they were not there that day. And this man uh, who, who heard the ATF tell him that they were not there, you know, he, he's testified on camera and he, he had a supervisor next to him when this was said to him. And his supervisor also affirmed on camera that that's exactly what this ATF guy said, that they weren't there. And so one of the things the ATF tried to do was they invented this cock and bull story where they said that one of their agents along with the DEA agent uh, was in an elevator in the Murrah building when the bomb went off. I believe that it was, I think they said his name is uh, Alex McCauley was this ATF agent. And what they said was, is that when the bomb went off, this elevator was on the ninth floor and that it dropped in free fall condition for more than five floor, five or six floors, something like that. And that uh, after it dropped, they made this uh, Hollywood sounding uh, completely bogus deal where supposedly they just, you know, karate chopped their way through drywall. They busted out of the elevator and and, you know, they all heroically escaped from this elevator and went to go and rescue and save victims. And what happened here is uh, the, the story uh, was just so incredibly stupid because um, the elevator inspectors, you know, who service those elevators at the Murrah building, uh, they examined all of the elevators and all modern elevators have um, a mechanism on them whereby if the elevator gets into a free fall condition, um, there is a mechanism on there that will lock it into place. And these mechanisms will also uh, indicate to the technician whether or not that elevator was ever in a free fall condition at any point. And uh, Dwayne Johnson uh, was a technician with Midwest Elevator Company and his supervisor both uh, examined these elevators. And he said that uh, none of the elevators in the building were ever in a free fall condition. Uh, that did not happen. Uh, they uh, mapped out exactly where all the elevators were when the bomb went off and exactly what happened. And the, quite simply, this story is made up. Uh, it did not occur. And uh, one of the quotes from the elevator guys, he said that, you know, if, if that happened to you, uh, I would ask you how long you were in the hospital, you know, and how lucky do you feel to have got out? Because, you know, that's it's like jumping six floors. You know, you're going to break your neck. So yeah. This is a good example of the, the feds. They're just going to, uh, not only are they not going to warn the people in the daycare, but they're going to make up false stories of heroics. Yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah. All right. Drywall. Oh, he has another one. I, uh, I bring, I'm only bringing this up because I thought it was, uh, it, it was an interesting point. Why do they blame it on Waco, their grace? And so I want to comment on that. I, I think that's part of the reason why is to kind of reframe the situation. I mean, if we're going to go full on conspiracy, like, this was completely planned or planned to some extent or, or, you know, or they just, you know, or maybe it was completely organic, but then they kind of tacked on some things onto it or, 
or really leaned into it or whatever, what have you. Uh, the Waco aspect, I think, kind of is because it allows you to reframe it as we were right. And I don't know if you have anything, anything to say on that. Uh, I think that's why, if there is a why, I mean, if it's not just completely organic, um, you know. That's you exactly know. right. You know, Scott Horton made this, he made a great point about this. And he said, essentially, what what happened in reframing this argument is it almost allows the FBI to, like, retroactively justify Waco. And what they're saying essentially is that, oh, you know, anybody who has a problem with burning children and uh, destroying a compound filled with Americans because you don't like their religious beliefs or you can't go and serve this guy a warrant like a normal police officer should, you have to burn everybody alive. Anybody who disagrees with that, well, they're, they're, they're Tim McVeigh. So that's what they're saying there. Oh, you got a problem with Waco? You're McVeigh. Yeah. Yeah. And the irony is if you do go full on conspiracy, it just means they killed more kids just to prove their point. But yeah. I mean, not saying that is the case. I mean, I, I don't know. The crazy thing about the Oklahoma City thing is I, I find it so hard. There's so many weird little isms about it. It's hard to get a bead on what really happened. I just know I just know and in, in some cases it's probably a lot like 9-11. I'm not someone who's like some crazy thinks it was all made up or a planned demolition or whatever. I mean. Uh, not to, to cast aspersions on those who do. I don't know. There's definitely some angles to believe that. Maybe, I don't know. I've never gone a deep dive. But, yeah, it, it's one of those things where, like, I, I don't know. It just, I completely lost my train of thought there. I'm, I'm going to be honest. No, but, I, uh, I kind of see, see what you're saying. Yeah. And, you know, um, the best way I think I can summarize in terms of what I think might have happened, because you're right, it's very hard to distill that when you have a thousand different nodes to this complex thing. Um, what I think happened is there was a sting operation at the time. The FBI had a program called PatCon, short for Patriot Conspiracy, and they were <laughs> yep they were using this to infiltrate right wing groups and to incite them to violence and what happened here is i believe you know mcveigh is guilty he absolutely was 100 percent involved in this um but that this uh, not only did, um, did the sting operation fail but the researchers uh, myself included believe that the fbi sting was either uh, penetrated by bad actors these are people connected to intelligence who wanted it to happen um, and by penetrating a, an FBI sting operation, you immediately compromise the FBI. Now they were 100% on board with covering it up because they cannot let it get out that they had a sting that was happening and they didn't stop it. And so you, you've compromised the FBI. They're going to cover it up. And uh, we believe that this might be what you would call domestic gladio Um and that's that's just an ongoing theory. But what we can prove, absolutely, I can prove 100%, is that Timothy McVeigh had accomplices. There were others involved. They were seen by 22 witnesses in Oklahoma City, and they were seen at other times. And the FBI is lying about that. We have to ask ourselves, why are they lying about that? And why have these other people not been captured? Yep. Um, all right. To go back to like kind of surface level poking holes, um, one thing I noticed, uh, there was a lot of lost camera footage and then there was, uh, cause apparently there were cameras there that were watching the building, but then lo and behold, they disappeared. And I guess supposedly from what I've heard, 
uh, you're definitely a better resource for knowing how legit this is. Um, later, they go, oh, yeah, we had him, but we lost him. And lo and behold, there's no no camera footage of the actual event occurring. Um, so I don't know if you have anything to add to that, uh, if, if, if I'm on the right path there or if I was led astray. No, you're on the right path there, absolutely. Uh, I wrote an essay about the surveillance camera footage of the Oklahoma City bombing, and this is um, a huge story. And uh, basically what happened here is it's a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit by David Hoffman in 1999. Uh, revealed uh, there in court, it was revealed that the FBI had 22 uh, different uh, recordings of the Murrah building and the surrounding area that they had seized during their investigation. Now, we know that of those 22, um, we know that at least three of them show either the bombing or the bombing perpetrators. As these tapes were reviewed by an FBI agent named Pamela Matson. She reviewed all of their surveillance footage and she wrote a report where she indicates which videos were positive in terms of evidentiary value, which that would mean it either shows the bombing or it shows uh, the bombing conspirators. And uh, ultimately, we have even better proof than that. And that's the fact that uh, in the fall, of 1995, it was published in almost every major newspaper in the United States uh, on the Associated Press. Uh, There's a headline that said that uh, the surveillance camera footage uh, captured the uh, rider truck and it shows that there is a passenger in the rider truck. And that was published in the newspaper. And I also have the clips from CNN where the reporters are saying the FBI says that it has obtained surveillance camera footage of the bombing. And if all that's not enough, you've also got the fact that uh, an FBI agent based out of the Los Angeles office uh, took surveillance footage from the investigation files. And he attempted to sell that to Dateline NBC for $1 million. And we know that because there was an informant uh, at NBC who was kind of leery about the whole thing and they reached out to the FBI and told them all about it. And so I have these FBI documents that show, uh, we'll talk about the attempted sale. And it says in those documents that the agent who is trying to broker and sell this footage screened it for Dateline NBC at an Orange County Sheriff's house. And this tape that he screened for them was a compilation tape. So it showed multiple of those 22 different recordings we talked about. And this compilation tape also included up to the moment when the rider truck was pulled up and two suspects exited that truck and that it shows the detonation. And so that definitely exists. We have the receipts to prove it. We have the documents. And ultimately, I think that um, I'm shocked that it has never appeared um, or leaked. But I think that footage would show quite possibly not just the bomb truck blowing up, but the b building collapsing on itself at the same time. And it would be obvious to anyone viewing it what happened there. Yeah. Uh, one more thing, and then I'll probably ask if you have any other information kind of roughly on this general aspect of the topic. Um, another thing I noticed is there was a shitload of rejected uh, uh, freedom of information requests, and it always came back with – I'm sure – don't get me wrong. I'm sure there were probably some that went through 
on certain aspects of things. But for the most part, the, the one thing I kept seeing is there were all sorts of people requesting Freedom of Information Act requests, and they get, they were getting shot down for national security reasons. So I, I don't know if there, you have more to touch on that. I, I do think that's kind of uh, something to uh, take into mind uh, to realize why are these things that are things of national security that you're saying we can't have access to. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's not conclusive proof that the feds did anything one case or another, but it's kind of like, why the fuck aren't you telling me? Uh, it it kind of leads you to believe they have some sort of involvement or some pie in their face in one way, shape or form. Right. So um, what you're seeing there is that with Freedom of Information Act requests, the FBI is just notoriously avoidant and they'll do anything they can to deny the request or not respond to it or avoid their obligations under FOIA. But uh, what I think you're talking about, and this is something that is really interesting, is something Jesse Trinidou found out in his FOIA lawsuit, and that is that um, the Central Intelligence Agency had something like between 20 and 30 uh, documents that they were um, essentially refused to provide on the basis of national security. And what we have from Jesse on that is what's called a Vaughn index. And this is an index that describes each of the particular document that is withheld. It describes some things about the document and it describes how the judge, the judge basically had to go through and review each of these uh, documents and decide whether or not um, it can be released. And anyone who looks at that is going to find at least four or five documents that will raise an eyebrow and most certainly will lead you to conclude that there is absolutely more to this than we've been told. Um, firstly, um, one thing to note about this case, it is unprecedented that sort of relates to, to this is that um, the uh, National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, which operates the Keyhole spy satellites, um, they were tasked um, on April 19th of uh, uh, using those spy satellite assets to view Elohim City. Um, and these are satellites that cannot be used for domestic targets. And it was actually the first time in history, supposedly, uh, that these satellites were used in a domestic case. And one thing to note is not even the director of the FBI has the pull to get these spy satellites and to use them in an investigation. So if these spy satellites were utilized, that would have to come from an authority such as the president or someone in the uh, operations department at the CIA. It's a pretty high up. Uh, I have Strywall Oh, he's asking what your opinion on James Corbett's OKC video. Although I feel like he's done a multiple ones. I haven't followed his work on it. I know he's done a lot. I don't know if you have any opinions on James Corbett on the OKC at all. Uh, yeah. yeah, I really like James Corbett. I've seen a few of his videos, and uh, um, I do like uh, – he, he did a couple on – actually on, on Oklahoma City. He did one on Terry Yeeke, on one on Kenneth Trinidou, and one, another one that this gentleman might be referring to uh, that was called something like The Secret Lives of Timothy McVeigh. Uh -huh. And I think it's a, a very good video. There is one bit of information in it that I believe is incorrect, but, you know – um, people do make mistakes and you know i understand that so i don't i don't hold that against them yeah when you're sifting through that much information i mean you can't really be held too liable within reason um 
I, I do want to let people know. Uh, I think we're, we're getting near the end. Uh, I, I do want to let you guys know, uh, definitely you need to pop in for the next one because uh, we only touch the surface uh, and it gets a lot weirder from here once you start getting into the connections, all the different people involved, all the weird people dying around it. Um, you think it's abhorrent at this point. It only gets worse. Uh, but with that, I want to ask you, um, I've, I've kind of already brought up all my questions kind of tangentially around the surface level of the bombing. I don't know if you have any other things you want to bring up in like kind of in this rough context. I think next episode we'll probably move into, you know, obviously starting with Timothy McVeigh, starting with like some of the main characters as accomplices, uh, some other weird characters. And then uh, maybe within that same one or maybe the next one, depending on how long that one goes, we'll probably get into a lot of the weird people dying and some other uh, crazy shit like uh, I guess some of the Clinton connections that are kind of crazy I'm sure you're aware of uh, that are very weird um, I mean I don't know if, how much those really play into this or if it's just a matter of convenience they decide to take that chance to burn all their shit uh, or get rid of all their stuff um, but is there anything else that you want to bring up at this point kind of uh, roughly in the vein of what we're kind of covering here yeah, so um, what I would suggest, if someone's new to this case or doesn't know a whole lot about it, um, I have a Medium page. Um, I, my name on, on Medium is uh, Booth underscore OKC. You can find a link to it on my Twitter bio. And on Twitter, I'm also Booth underscore OKC. I would say uh, just go there and uh, read an essay called uh, Who is John Doe Number 2? Um, another thing a person can do is they go to the libertarianinstitute.org slash OKC. And this is where I have all of my documents on there. And I would say I challenge to a person, just go look at the news reports and read the news reports that were published starting on April 19th for, say, three weeks, the first three weeks of the case. And you will walk away thinking, oh, my God, th this is a obviously a criminal conspiracy there's others involved it's all right here it's all right in there in the news and so i'd be happy to talk about that and any number of other uh, other aspects to the case uh, something that that i'm passionate about and i like to talk about it so um, I, my goal is to is to educate another generation of students and get them the documents they need to write papers and to learn about the case yeah well, with that, I guess if you want to go ahead and drop whatever plugs you have again, uh, I know you have a YouTube channel and multiple other things. You have a lot of great content. Uh, you kind of already did. Uh, if there's anything else you want to mention while we're as we're about to get out of here. Sure. Yeah. So on Twitter, it's um, I'm Booth, B-O-O-T-H underscore OKC. And on my Twitter bio, uh, there's a link there to my Medium page where I publish my essays. You can also find my essays in Garrison Magazine in issues number six, seven, and nine. And I'll also be having an essay coming up in the next issue of Garrison, which will be about foreknowledge and prior knowledge, some of the things we talked about today. And so people can uh, look out for that. And if they want to do research on their own, just go to libertarianinstitute.org slash OKC. And there are thousands of documents there for any budding student uh, who wants to write about this. And like I said earlier, my, my Twitter's nuke. So I appreciate any reach I get from any of you people who want to share it, especially in an episode like today. I do think stuff like this is extremely important, uh, especially, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, we, we a lot of times, uh, you know, in our spheres, we talk red pill, blue pill. I think stuff like this is what really red pills you or whatever. Because once you realize, start taking 
content like this and putting it, applying this to other things, it really starts to open your eyes, whether it be this, whether it be, uh, you know, MK Ultra, which is stuff that's, you know, you know, been completely admitted by the feds, uh, Operation Northwoods, and it starts putting things in modern days into, uh, into, uh, into clear context, things like, uh, the Gretchen Whitmer thing with all the, what was it, like 14 out of 16 were feds. Uh, Absolutely. It was, uh, then you have things like Mike Epps at, at January 6th, uh, you know, which is kind of funny. I was thinking about that when you were talking about um, Timothy McVeigh, not saying it's a perfect corollary, but there is definitely something too, you know, with him getting booted out of the, the militia movements or being spurned by them. It really brings up, uh, if anyone's seen the Mike Epps video where he's like, come on, let's go into the Capitol. And everyone's like peacefully. And he's like, ah, let's just go in the Capitol. Like, rah, rah. like he was trying to ignite the crowd into a fervor and, 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 and people were just laughing at him and calling him a fed. And it, it really kind of, I know you look at things like that and it really kind of is like, huh, you know, history rhymes. Um, and I do think it's important to have these things in mind because, I mean, I'm not saying the feds do everything. I'm not going full Alex Jones with uh, things like Sandy Hook. But at the same time, I'm also not not going there either, because uh, once you start realizing what the your government is capable of, you start realizing, like, maybe I shouldn't just shrug off shit like that. Uh, maybe there, I, I should take it with some level of seriousness because especially with OKC and then you, you apply to Sandy Hook, not saying Sandy Hook was completely made up. I don't know. I've never gone a deep dive on it, but you know, the, the same thing uh, happened with Alex Jones. There is happened with a lot of people who are doing what we're doing right now with OKC. People got shrugged off like the kids, the children, the children, how dare you? And it's, yeah. it's like, well, I mean, it, okay. Is that, that's not an argument. I mean, if anything, it makes it worse that if, if you did this and there are kids involved, that's, it's not that's you just, you know, opining over the children doesn't really change anything here. Um, and I do think this is something that we need to get hip to and realize it's, I mean, it's, I know whether it's incompetence or evil or a combination of the two, um, you know, unchecked power is something to be afraid of or, or, or to be aware of at the very least. So, um, but yeah, I appreciate everyone who showed up for the stream. Uh, please uh, share this far and wide. They'll be available publicly uh, about a week or so from now. Uh, if you want it in the meantime, patreon.com just no way Jose 2020. Uh, and yeah, I, I can't follow me on Twitter anymore, like I said. So, and Odyssey, uh, I really do want to push Odyssey. Follow me on Odyssey because I mean, while I do think I'm probably, I mean, it's, it happened in 95, I'm probably safe now, but you never know. Uh, I mean, people get nuked off YouTube all the time. My other show, Tower Power Hour, is exclusively, well, sort of exclusively. We have a YouTube that'll probably get taken down for Banavision soon. But, um, you know, it's, it wouldn't be that crazy that this, at the very least, flags it. I don't know. I don't know how much uh, OKC content gets flagged these days. Uh, but, you know, definitely follow me on Aussie. I'm very interested in maybe going, starting to do more content like this. So if any of you guys out there have, People, whether they be uh, experts on Ruby Ridge or, you know, some other thing. Like I said, I have Duncan doing a Duncan Lemp episode next week, which kind of sort of, uh, I mean, I don't think there was some crazy Fed involvement in Lemp. If anything, I think that was more or less just the cops being, you know, idiots. But, um, you know, I mean, it still definitely kind of applies as well. So, yeah, with that, I mean, like, share, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. Uh, please share this far and wide. I do think this is important content. I appreciate you coming on, Richard. There will definitely be multiple parts to this, whether it's two, three, four. I don't know. It depends on how deep we go. But I'm definitely looking forward to going further with this with you. Uh, I appreciate your time. And with that, we are out. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.